Whoa! Wow. Wow, that feels nice. I'm guessing you were told to do that. <laughs> no, I feel the love. Uh, I hope it's at every campus. Let's do that, Littleton. Thank you guys at Littleton. But we also want to welcome everyone at uh, Lakewood and Arvada. And of course, we love you up in Evergreen, across the pond in Brussels, onlineers, podcasters, Facebook livers. We love you as well. And you guys know what's next, man. This I look forward to saying this every time I get up here. Can we give the most gracious welcome and round of applause for all the men and women at God Behind Bars? We love you guys so much such a gift that we get to worship with all those beautiful people. I'm just believing for an awesome weekend. We got a lot to cover, so I'm just going to pray and we're going to jump right in. Heavenly Father, I ask in these next few minutes that your blessing would be resting on every campus that we meet at, that your blessing would be resting on every single person that's meeting at these campuses. Holy Spirit, would you do the beautiful work that only you can do. And more than anything, Holy Spirit, would you amplify the person and the work of Jesus Christ in our hearts and in our lives. And Jesus, it's in your magnificent saving name that we pray this. And everyone at every campus said, Amen. Amen. I'm ready to go. If you're taking notes, we are in week three of a series that we have titled Just Getting Started. Most of you know the inception of that series. It came at Easter when Sean was talking about it. If you're taking notes this weekend, the title of this message is New Wine. And I know what some of you are thinking. Last time you were up here, Pastor Chad, two weeks ago, your message was titled Drunk. And now it's titled New Wine. Do we need to pray for you? Is our pastor, is our pa- I promise you, I'm good there. This is not my great vice. If I ever come up here and start a series called Ben and Jerry's, <laughs> it's time to pray. If I'm doing sermons called like Chunky Monkey and Cherry Garcia and everything but the, then you need to start praying for your pastor and his cholesterol because uh, gluttony is my big one. But this is not on purpose. I'm not trying to do an alcohol-related theme. I'm just going where God's taking me. So we got drunk two weeks ago. Well, we didn't get drunk. We did a sermon called Drunk. That would not be good, right? And now this week, I titled the message New Wine, and you'll see very quickly as you turn to Luke chapter 5 in your Bibles. Don't worry if you don't have your Bible. It will come up on the big Bible on the screens there, and you can read along. But in Luke chapter 5, Jesus has a talk where he gives a parable to help the people understand some of the frustration they were dealing with him with. And uh, we're going to read it. It's New Wine. Uh, Just to set it up a little bit, uh, here's what happened right before what we're about to uh, read in Luke chapter 5. A guy by the name of Matthew is at his tax collector booth on the Sea of Galilee. And a guy by the name of Jesus, you may have heard of him, he walks by and says, Hey, Matt, now rabbis typically would never talk to tax collectors. We know this. We've talked about this. Because tax collectors in first century Judea were as low as it got. They were literally the scum of the earth. Remember, in the Bible they mentioned sinners and then who? Tax collectors. They got their own category below sinners, right? That's how Jesus just looks at them as a rabbi, which was completely unorthodox up to this point. He says, hey, Matt, what, what, rabbi? You want to follow me? And he just drops everything he's doing and he goes and he follows Jesus. And the first thing Jesus does, and Jesus never does anything arbitrarily, right? It's always with a divine and with a theological purpose. Jesus says, okay, follow me. And the first thing he does with this scoundrel, the scum of the earth, the one who is literally stealing and extorting from his family members and people who are highly oppressed, is he doesn't go and put them in a divine timeout. 
He doesn't put him instantly through Bible and holiness school so he can change his ways. He doesn't have a stern talking to like you would have thought he had. Hey, if you're going to follow me, then, you know, the first thing the Bible says is they go to his house and have a party. And Jesus does nothing arbitrarily. Jesus is up to something. We call it in modern terms in our English language, grace. It's getting something that you don't deserve so that you can, through that fuel, become everything you were meant to be, right? And this is what Jesus does. We read it in the prodigal son story, which is our theme story at this church. The first thing that rebellious son gets when he comes home is not a lashing or not a timeout or a talking to. What's he get? He gets a party. And it makes no sense to the world. And it makes the older brother in the backyard mad. These Pharisees are mad because it was so unorthodox for a rabbi to do what they thought was so much harm and disrespect to the brotherhood of the priests by doing something like this. Yet Jesus comes and he says, hey, let's break bread together. And they don't like it. And so they call him on it. And Jesus overhears him, it says, in Matthew chapter 4, because he's the creator of hearing, right? We've talked about that. He overhears him and he says, hey, who needs a doctor? The healthier the sick, and they know they're in a corner, and they just answer the sick. But they're still mad because they still don't think it's right that Jesus is eating with Matthew and having a good time with tax collectors and sinners and scoundrels. They don't like that kind of grace. In fact, they don't even understand grace yet. And Jesus is trying to show them practically what this new thing called grace looks like. And so they don't let it go, and they continue. We often end the message right after Jesus says, it's not the healthy or the, who need a doctor, it's the sick, Right? But they continue at it. And here's where we pick up Luke chapter 5, verse 33 through 39. They said to Jesus, well, hey, Jesus, John's disciples, like John the Baptist was the man, right? John's disciples often fast and pray. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours go on eating and drinking. And here's Jesus's response to that, right? Because what on paper looks way more spiritual and godly? Eating and drinking, celebrating, having fun together, or praying and fasting, right? Right, of course, praying and fasting is going to always, if you want to look spiritual, tell people how much you pray and fast. If you don't want to sound very spiritual, talk to people about hospitality and having people over and breaking bread together. Both are so beautifully divine, but there's rhythm to it, right? And they don't understand that. They're saying, hey, hey, you're like this drunken and you're like this glutton. And here's Jesus' answer. He said, can you make the friends of the bridegroom? I love that he calls these tax collectors and these sinners friends. I love that he instantly is already saying, hey, these are my friends and I'm the, the bridegroom and this is, this is going to make up the bride. Uh, can you make the bridegroom, the friends of the bridegroom fast while he was with them? Of course not. He says, but the time will come, make no mistake about it, when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And it's going to be really sad and it's going to be real difficult. And listen to what he says, because there's a rhythm to everything in God's kingdom. There's a rhythm to grace always. He goes, then they'll fast. There's a good time to fast. There's an appropriate time to fast, but it's not when I'm with them. When I'm with them, we're going to do what we're going to be doing for an eternity in heaven, and I want to show them that. We're going to be breaking bread together. We're going to be communing together. We're going to be celebrating together. Fasting won't be a part of the equation anymore. Thank you, Jesus, because we won't need to be fighting any more spiritual battles because those battles will be completely and fully finished. But in the meantime, just know I'm here, and we're here to celebrate while I'm here because eventually I'm going away and they just wouldn't get it and Jesus knew that this wasn't just the Pharisees he knew this was an issue of human nature he knew how much humans love structure he knew how much humans cling to things that make us feel safe he knew how much humans love for people to give us systems that we can execute to find our safety and our purpose in life and Jesus was coming I'm here to break up some systems 
I'm here to completely redefine some structure that you guys have had for millennia now. And so he tells him a parable to help him understand this. He says, no one tears a piece of a new garment to patch the old one. Like that's dumb, right? He's saying in their culture, otherwise they will have torn the new garment and the patch from the new one will not match the old one. In other words, he's talking about any type of of garment made out of, of course, animal at the time. And he's saying, listen, if there's an old garment and you're really, really attached to it and you really, really love it, but because it's getting old, it starts to rip and it starts to tear and you just really want to keep that old blanket instead of making a new blanket, here's what you're tempted to do. Get new patches and pieces of leather or animal and put it on the old stuff. The problem, though, is the old stuff's already shrunk. It's already done its thing. So when you rewash it again and again and again, the new patch is going to start shrinking. And guess what it's going to do? It's going to tear. And it's going to be worse off than if you had never done that in the first place. So either keep the old blanket with all of its holes and just accept it for what it is. Or let's talk about something completely new. Out with the old and in with the new. Jesus was trying to show them, hey, the old covenant is about to start fading out because I'm bringing in this new covenant. One was founded on law and now this one's going to be founded on grace. One was found on structure and rules and systems. This one's simply going to be founded, get this, radical, on just love. Pure, unadulterated love in an ever-increasing, growing form. And I picture them not getting it, but, but, but we get this. And let me explain this. Here's what he's saying. And this is a broken analogy, but, but it's the best I got because I'm a dad. My daughter had this thing called a blankie. You all had one growing up. It was either your thumb It was one of those pacifiers, or it was a blankie, or it was some type of stuffed animal, right? My first son had the pacifier. Jane had the blankie. My uh, uh, six-year-old had a teddy bear, and my two-year-old's just crazy. He's got nothing. He just doesn't sleep. And so (laughs) he doesn't pacify himself. But my daughter had a blanket, and a year ago, we lost it. And... um, She's nine. She's, she's several years too long to have this old little tiny pink blanket. But when, when you grow up as a child and your brain isn't even close to formed, you use pacifiers and you use thumbs and you use blankets and stuffed animals as incredible coping. They're actually a gift of grace. You understand that? Those pacifiers are a gift of grace because that brain has no clue. You think we adults have trouble coping? And we do. You try being a little kid again, right? We just don't have that part formed yet. And so, so, so that blanket was grace. But, but Jane was getting to this age where it went from beautiful to kind of gross. Not, not, not just the blanket. The blanket's gross. It's probably the single most deadly blanket on planet Earth with all the germs that have, have came because of it. But, but it was gross in that, like, you're too old to walk around and cry and whine when we want to take that. Or when you can't take the blankie to school with you. I'm like, you're in second grade now. That's not going to go well for you. Don't take the blankie, Right. But when that blankie has been with you through thick and thin, when that blankie represents structure, when it represents safety, when Jane was told by her older brother that there were monsters in her closet and then we put her to bed, guess what kept her feeling safe? The blankie, right? Every time mom and dad had to discipline Jane and she was disappointed that we were disappointed and she's in her room crying, guess what calms her down? Nothing else other than the blankie. You parents know, your kids, it was the pacifier, it was the stuffed animal or the thumb or whatever it was, but it's a gift from God. But at some point, you grow to a certain age where that goes from cute and neat and endearing to gross. Now, the law was a gift from God to the nation of Israel 
out of the Garden of Eden because now all of a sudden this thing called sin brought chaos into the human experience and that humans were never created to have to cope the way we've coped because of sin. And so God gives us this thing called the Torah and the law and it's this big, massive binky <laughs> that is giving structure and safety and system to an otherwise world that would be out of, in fact, the time God gave it, he was so put off by how out of control and sinful the world was and the world had no clue that he said, all right, Moses, we're bringing a law to bring structure back. And so he gives us this, this grand two millennia, two millennia old thing, a divine binky that says, I'm gonna allow you to cope through the law. But as soon as Jesus comes, all of a sudden, here's the deal. You can't contain Jesus in the Torah. The Torah was made to help point to Jesus. Jesus did not come to repoint us back to the Torah. You understand that? And, and all of a sudden, the, the people, the religious leaders of, of everything who, who treat this Torah as their sacred binky, their sacred blanket, their sacred stuffed animal, a gift from God for this chaotic world to cope, all of a sudden Jesus is coming and going, guess what? I know you're going to kick and scream and you're not going to like this, but it's time to get rid of the blankie. And they want nothing to do with it. And that's why he's telling these stories. He gives them another analogy. He says, he says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Everyone in that culture would have understood that. That's 101 in the winemaking world in first century. Otherwise, here's what would happen. The new wine, which Jesus came to bring, will burst the old skins. The wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. He goes, no, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. Now take that down for a minute and I'll read the last part in a minute. But what Jesus is saying here is the old wineskins, the Torah, it can't contain me. I'm too big, I'm too grand, I'm too majestic. I am the full expression of God. And all the Torah was, was this important, sacred, beautiful, but tiny expression of who God is and showing them what God is all about. But when Jesus comes, he says, man, that, 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 those blanky days are over. I'm going to give you a degree of freedom. I'm going to give you a way to cope with this chaotic world in the midst of the sin that no law and no Torah could ever do. I'm going to fulfill the Torah in your place. I'm going to be everything that blanky was meant to be and a million times more. But you've got to be willing to let me throw away that and let that fade out and do away with that. And you've got to accept something completely new. In other words, I'm going to come and I'm going to eat with people like Matthew. And I know you don't like it. And I, I know you've created caste systems and separated yourselves from people you deem not worthy, but I'm coming to try by my grace to make everybody worthy by the grace of God. I'm coming to show the world that everybody's invited to the table. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter what you've been through. Doesn't matter whatever you're going through, your experience. Everyone qualifies through the grace of Jesus Christ. And he goes on and he tells us this about human nature. He says, no one after drinking the old wine wants the new. And all the wine enthusiasts said, Amen. Be careful. No one wants the new, and here's why. And he's not speaking really about wine. He's speaking about human nature. He says the old is better. Why? Let's have a gracious, compassionate, but yet very real moment. This world is extremely and profoundly chaotic, is it not? And it's not getting any lighter anytime soon, if that's what you're hoping for. So our ability to not only cope, but our ability to thrive in Christ is going to have to come from us fully embracing Christ. And he's saying, listen, he's trying to tell these Pharisees, listen, I'm here to bring you something so much better, so much more beautiful, 
You're going to walk in uh, new degrees of freedom you never thought were even possible. But you can't. And here, here's what they would say. Well, we can't deny Jesus anymore. So we want to bring Jesus into the picture. But what do you say we make a G- deal, Jesus? You act like new wine and we'll keep the Torah as an old wineskin. And Jesus goes, it can't hold me. And everyone then knew what he was talking about because when you put new wine into an old wineskin, the problem is the new wine starts to change. It starts to transform. It's called fermentation. And fermentation causes expansion. And so all of a sudden you fill that wineskin up, that old wineskin with new wineskin, then it starts to ferment and change. And as soon as it starts to change, that old wineskin explodes. And now you not only have a ruined, beautiful, sacred old wineskin and all of its beautiful memories... And all the beautiful wine it used to hold, that's ruined. But guess what else is ruined and thrown on the floor for no use? The new wine. So Jesus says, if you're really going to accept a fuller degree of God, then there's just certain times where you got to put the old blankie down or the old binky and the old pacifier away. And you got to be ready for something new. I thought about it this week and I thought the best example I, I had in my mind was the evolution of home movie watching. And here's what I mean. I'm 44 years old, and so when I was a little kid, they came out with this piece of technology that was awesome. It was called, some of you millennials, Generation Z, check out for a minute. You just won't even know what I'm talking It was called the VCR, okay? <laughs> Game changer. I love movies. I love art via the cinema. I think it's a gift from God. I love it. And, and, and here's the deal, though. It was so new when I was a little kid that only people that had VCRs were, were the wealthy people. Us lowly serfs and peasants had to drive to a creepy local video store. And there was only one at the time. They didn't have Blockbuster yet. There was only one at the time in any city, no matter how big the city. And they were creepy. And you had to ask to rent a VCR. And they put it in this massive suitcase. And they gave you some rules. And you would go home and read the rules. And it was like, connect this metal thing to this. Unscrew this that you didn't even know was in the back of your TV. And if you put it in the wrong one, it's going to explode and your whole family's going to die. You guys remember that? Like the pressure you you had to put the VCR, this, this new piece of technology into the television so that you could literally watch a movie at home, which would just blow in people's minds. And I remember as a kid, we got to do that a couple of times. We got to go with my dad and we got to rent the VCR and we got to sit in there and pick out a movie for not just Friday night, but then a second movie that me and my brother got to pick out for Saturday morning. And it was awesome. And they started in our capitalistic spirits to realize how awesome it was. And so that technology, that technology, like it always does, gets streamlined. And all of a sudden, it gets affordable to the masses. And all of a sudden, almost everybody has at least one in their home. We did as well. And so in the spirit of capitalism, this beautiful gift from God happens called Blockbuster. Now there's not one creepy one on every corner. Now, now it's Blockbuster on every corner. And they've got every movie under the sun and they've got like 20 of them. Remember trying to get there in time when a new one came out before the 20 were gone? You got to settle for your second pick. Those were the days, man. What a sport. <laughs> I love that. But I was still a kid in the beginning. Of, I was still a kid in the beginning of those days, and I remember we would go with our parents, or we would go with friends, and it, we would stay like 30, 40 minutes sometime, and just it was such a big deal. And then they had movie candy as well, but it was cheaper than at the movie theater. Blockbuster knew what they were doing, right? They knew what they were doing, and we would go and we'd get movies again, and, and and we'd go home and watch them, and we thought, man, Jesus must be coming back because this is the highest form. Of technology, I mean, like, like we don't, like, we don't even have to go to the movie theater anymore. And they're on like every block. Jesus is coming back, and Jesus, is like, not yet, because we got this thing called the DVD, right? 
You mean to tell me on a disc without any, any tape or anything, it can play a film? Yeah, on a little disc, you can actually put it in this new disc machine. But of course, the, the lowly serfs didn't have those yet. And so half a blockbuster was still VHS tapes. And then for the rich folk, you got the DVD. And then as soon as it was streamlined and we had the DVD, Blu-ray came out. And again, it's the rich people that have the Blu-ray with the high def and the great Dolby surround sound stuff, right? And it's us peasants. With, and it's like how quickly we're like not satisfied anymore with that. And it was beautiful. And you thought, now Jesus is coming back because it's on a DVD. Again, there's not even any tape. And then all of a sudden, Netflix doesn't change the DVD game, but it changes the game because it's like, we can't have these future millennials walking or driving to a store. They got to be able to stay at home on their phones. So what if, what if we actually got an application on their computers on the World Wide Web where they could tell us the next 10 movies they want to watch? We'll call it a queue. And in this queue, you're going to tell us the next 10 or 5 that you want to watch. We'll just send you them one at a time from your first rank to your second. And here's the deal. You can watch it. You can keep it as long as you watch. You can watch it 10 times. There's no late fees blockbusters. And all of a sudden, Netflix is the new thing. And all you have to commit to is a 90-foot walk to your mailbox, taking it out of there, and sitting down. And all of a sudden, blockbuster start to shut down. This once beautiful thing that was so new and so beautiful and so game-changing where we thought it couldn't get any better, all of a sudden they're starting to shut down because now we don't even have to leave our houses. And Netflix was like, yeah, but that, that 90-foot that 90 walk, it's, again, they're, they're millennials, so we, got, we can't do that. We can't, I'm, I love you, millennials. I'm just having some fun. I stick up for you all the time, so give me some grace here. But they can't do that 90, so, so here's, it's too much, you know, to like lick it and put it back in the mailbox and wait a whole 48 hours for the next one, because then they'd have to go out and play. And so, <laughs> so, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. And so now all of a sudden, they figure out an application and they get in cahoots with the local and national cable companies, and all of a sudden now, I, I literally watched a movie with my son last night, and I took the controller and I said, Netflix. And it switched from Comcast to Netflix. And then I said the name of the movie. And it went right to the movie. And I just hit it. And we got to watch the movie. And it was that fast. There was nothing else involved. And I'm sitting there going, surely Jesus is coming back. <laughs> this must be it. Because there could possibly be nothing new or better on the horizon. And this has streamlined everything. And I feel safe with this. And I finally learned how to do it in the controller. And just about the time you feel cool and you feel safe because uh, you've learned the system, there's a new thing, right? And it's better and it's more beautiful. But listen, this is God's MO with us. This is what he does. Every season of life, every decade of life that you're in is going to be two things for sure. It's going to be beautiful. you got to find the beauty, but it's there. And it's going to be broken. Every one of those systems I just talked to you about had both beautiful and broken. Blockbuster was beautiful, but it was broken. I'll tell you how. Late fees. You guys remember those? People of the 80s and 90s sweat and remember going, oh my God, I got 30 minutes or it's late. And you're sprint, you're breaking all kinds of laws down the street. You're thinking, if it's late, you're thinking of your story. So the 17-year-old named Kenny gives you some grace. All of a sudden, your future finances and debts are in the hands of Kenny, a 17-year-old who might be willing to overlook that you turned it in five minutes late. But if you don't, your car might get repoed. Like, do you remember... You guys remember, like, neighbors moving out of their house? It's like, what happened? Remember when I had you over three weeks ago to watch Rambo? Yeah? 
I just found Rambo and they, <laughs> three weeks, oh my God, they took the house, didn't they? They took the house. Did you get to keep Rambo? Yeah, we got to keep Rambo. Could I borrow it? <laughs> like, no, no, that's too much. Let's read the Bible. I don't know what's next. My, my, my guess is, is contact lenses that you'll, you'll sit in a plane and you'll have a three, four hour flight and you'll put in some contact lenses and you'll look at your phone and you'll say, Siri, play Bad Boys 5 for me, would you? And all of a sudden you'll be watching that with just contacts in and we will have forgotten about the last thing. And we'll think, surely it can't get any better than this. And then there'll be something after that and it will be beautiful and it will be broken. And we will keep building and we will keep building and we will keep building. And, and Red Rocks Church, this is what I want you to understand. Because I know where you, you, some, some of you smart people, you know where I'm going with this. And here's what you're thinking. You're thinking, well, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Sorry, I don't know why the grumpy... <laughs> <laughs> the grumpy southern guy is my second voice in my mind. Well, Jesus... I, anytime I feel like I'm getting emailed and someone's mad, I hear that voice. Jesus is the same yesterday, day, forever. Bible says it, that declares it, that settles it. I believe it, amen, right? I don't know what this preacher's talking about. Because here, here, And here's a fair question. Some of you are thinking, okay, well, I get the, the old to the new covenant. I get why Jesus is doing what he's doing. But, but Chad, if I read the Bible right, we're not getting another covenant. So what should we be on the lookout for? But, but here, here's what I want to say. The writer of Hebrews is dead on. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But here's the rub. You're not. So let the games begin. That right there, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but you're not. And you know what that means? We are just tipping the iceberg of our understanding of the greatness and the majesty and the grandeur and the beauty of the God that we serve. And that may frustrate you, but that fires me up. I'm 44 years old, and I know next to nothing about the greatness and majesty and grandeur of the God I serve. And that used to frustrate me, especially as a pastor, because you all put so much pressure on me to know everything. And I'm sitting there going, I, I'm learning with you guys. And it's like God going, man, there's some, there's some, I am, I'm never changing. But you are all the time. And you, I'm, I'm never evolving, God's saying, but you are all the time. God's revelation, I wrote in my notes, God's revelation of himself, listen to me, it is finished. Your understanding of God's revelation of himself, just getting started. God's story of humanity, finished, written. Genesis to Revelations. In fact, in Revelations, John says, anybody who adds or takes away from this prophecy, be cursed. It's finished, Genesis to Revelation. But your understanding of Genesis to Revelation, small ball. I say this with the most respect because I was taught to respect my elders, and I do. If you're in here and you're 80 years old, you are just tipping the iceberg of your understanding of the fullness and the grandeur of who God is through Jesus Christ. And it's not just a knowledge thing anyways. New growth, new wine, it's not an issue of just ever-increased intellect and knowledge. That's just a small piece of it. The ultimate goal is increased love. When I say new wine, I'm not just saying, hey, let's all get smarter and more intelligent. Let's try and find out more depths and nuances about God and how he does things. There's a place for that. But the Bible says knowledge puffs up, love builds up. So while knowledge has its place, man, if you just think knowledge is what gives you new wine or knowledge is what takes you to the next place, no, loving people better, loving yourself better, loving other people's better, ready, ready? loving your enemies better. That's when God starts doing new things. That's when you know new things are happening. I wrote this, God's work for our redemption on the cross finished. Sean talked about it at Easter. It is finished. But your work in the redemptive story that he already finished his part is just getting started. 
Don't take my word for it. The Apostle Paul, greatest theologian to ever walk the face of the earth. Nobody knows more about God who's ever lived as a human, in my humble opinion, than the Apostle Paul. And here's where I have that opinion. He says that about himself in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul said, I was taken away, and I'm not sure if it was in the body or out of the body, but I had a vision about the fullness of the kingdom of God. I had a heavenly, he says, I went to the third heaven. I went up there in the presence of God and I saw the fullness of God. And, and that might be intimidating to you or you might be skeptical or you might be like, why wouldn't God do that for me? I asked for that. <laughs> okay, a couple reasons. He wrote over half the New Testament, okay? You want the guy writing that to us 2,000 years later to have that experience so he can pen some stuff that we can really put our faith in, right? So that's a good thing. But the Apostle Paul was given such surpassingly great revelations. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, to keep me from becoming arrogant, I was given a thorn and it tormented me day and night. And I pleaded with God three times for him to take it away from me and to keep me from being arrogant because of how much I know compared to the average human being about God and his kingdom and about grace and the gospel God said, no, I'm not going to take it away from you. In your weakness, Paul, my power is made perfect. My grace is sufficient for you. Okay, so knowing that about Paul, the single greatest human theologian to ever walk the face of the earth, listen to what the guy who knows more than all of us combined says about our understanding of God. He says, for we know in part right now, and we prophesy, that's speaking on God's behalf about God's finished story. That's what I'm doing right now, prophesying. And you know what I'm doing? I'm doing it broken, flawed, imperfect. I'm doing it to the best of my God-given ability through the power of the Holy Spirit, but it is still immature and flawed and with so much understanding lacking. God still blesses it. He still changes us every week, but I only know what I know, right? He says, right now we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes... What is in part disappears. He says, when I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I put the blankie, the binky, the thumb, the teddy bear of my faith. He goes, I put it away. It was good for a while. He goes, but I put the ways of childhood behind me so I could receive something new. Listen to what he says, though. This is so important. For now, right now, this era, we live in the same era as Paul, post-Christ. Second coming of Christ era. For now, we only see a reflection as in a mirror. But then, when we're in the presence of God, when the fullness, the culmination of all things, the second coming of Christ, when that happens, then we shall see God face to face. He says this, right now, I, the greatest theologian to ever walk the face of the earth, I only know in part when it comes to God. But then I shall know fully, even then as I am fully known. That can either destroy you or bless you. That can either free you or imprison you. And it all depends on, God is saying something so profoundly freeing in my opinion here. He's saying the goal of being an awesome church and an awesome Christian and doing honor to God's word isn't pretending to know all the ins and outs and nuances and depths of God's word. It's to walk in the humility of the fact that you don't. And as you're learning more and more in your journey with God on this, on this thing for new wine, as you're pursuing new wine and new degrees of understanding, here's what you better put your hope in, humility and love. Because you don't know it all. And I don't know it all. But here's what we're tempted to do. We're, we're, we're tempted to go to churches where the pastors just constantly reaffirm what we believe. Don't meddle with me. Don't challenge me. Don't say some stuff. Just tell me, reaffirm what I believe. And here's why. It's because we want safety. We want structure. We want systems. And listen, there is a time and a divine rhythm for safety, structure, and systems. 
But as soon as safety structure and systems cause you to miss Christ like the Pharisees did, all of a sudden those aren't divine and helpful anymore. All of a sudden they're a burden. Jesus came to change status quo. Jesus came to introduce something new and so many people missed it because they bought into this lie that the highest form of peace was structure and safety. May I remind you of what C.S. Lewis wrote in the Chronicles of Narnia when little Susie's having a talk with Mrs. Beaver, was that her name? And she asked about this lion, the king of the woods. And is he safe? Because little Susie's going, I normally wouldn't approach a lion. And she's like, oh, he's, he's not safe. And she's like, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, so I, I shouldn't approach him. She's like, no, 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 he's good. That's why you can approach him, but, but make most, no mistake about it. He's not safe. Listen, you're going to live in eternity of perpetual safety. You're going to live in, a, in a, an eternity of comfort. You're going to live in an eternity where status quo is perfect and everything we need it to be. That's not the case right now. Here's what I'm getting at, Red Rocks Church. God has endless seasons for you and me where he wants new things and new wine. And it's not because he's changing. It's because we're changing. It's not because he's changing. He's the same yesterday and forever. It's because we know in part and we prophesy in part. Even if you're 60, 70, 80 years old in here, I'm 44, it would be crazy for me to just go, tell me what to do, God, and I'll execute. And that's the high form of my relationship with God. Give me systems, give me structure, give me boundaries, tell me what it is, and then I'll just do my best with white knuckle discipline and some grace from God to just execute. I don't want that kind of relationship. I want one that's vibrant, just like I have with my wife. I want it to be better at 15 years than it was at 10 years. And it was better at 10 years than it was at five years. It was broken, but it was beautiful. And I, I want it better where we're 15 years in. I want it to be better at 20 than it ever was at 15 but you got to be willing sometime in your marriage, you got to be willing sometime with God to throw away the old and say it's time for something new and have the courage to let some of your systems and structures that has brought you a, a sense of peace up to this point, you got to put those on the altar sometime and say, God, I want new wine. If there's, if there's the next phase, whatever it is, whatever I'm missing about you that's causing me to not live in the fullness of who I was intended to be, God, just wreck me with it. Let me see it. I don't want to miss it. And band, you guys can go ahead and come on up because if we're not tempted, we'll miss it just like the Pharisees did. It's easy to be self-righteous and look at the Pharisees with scorn, but Jesus is trying to tell them, listen, you, you, you're going to try your best to, to barter a deal where you keep the law sacred and important and is equally apart and me on the other side with grace and it just won't work. Both will get ruined. So you got to choose what you want. You want to stick with the old? You want to stick with your rules, regs, systems, and structures? You can, but you're going to miss out on something divinely freeing and so much better. And I would even argue, I could picture Jesus saying, you're actually going to adhere to my law better once you realize that I fulfilled it in your place because now you can do it as an offering instead of a demand. And humans notoriously offer things up better than we give them when we're demanded. I don't know what, it, it's. we were wired for that. Think about it. The joy you get from giving an offering versus the joy you get from paying a bill. Right? I've done both many times over. There's no comparison. And Jesus is going, what if I'm coming to bring a world where there's no more bills to be paid because I paid the final bill in full with my blood on the cross? But now, Red Rocks Church, you get to offer holiness as an offering to me. You get to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. And it's going to be your spiritual act of worship. And it's going to be beautiful. 
that's the era we live in. And listen to me, God has something new for you. And I desperately want it for me and I want it for every, everyone in our church. God has something new for our church. And here's what else I've learned about human nature, mostly through my own failures and my own learning, but I've learned this about humans is most of us don't miss out on something new God's doing because of malice or because we're horrible people or because we're Pharisees at our heart. Most of us miss out on it because there's things in our life that we're still not willing to deal with. And we miss new wine. And here's what I mean. I want to read you a passage of scripture in Hosea. And I'll end with this. This is a powerful passage of scripture talking about kind of that new wine principle in different language. Hosea is talking to a very hard-hearted, idol-driven, rebellious culture in Israel at the time. And God's word of redemption to them towards the end of the book is this. He says to Israel and he says it to us several thousand years later. He says, Red Rocks, sow for yourselves righteousness. Why? Why, God? We like these idols. We like this disobedience. We like this fun we're having. He says, so you'll reap what you really want, what you were really designed for, unfailing love. Because that's what the human heart most wants, whether you know it or not, is to be loved, to be known, to be loved unconditionally for every part of who we are, the good, the bad, and the ugly. He says, sow righteousness for yourselves, reap the fruit of unfailing love, and then here's the language, I love this. Break up your unplowed ground, for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers as like a gift, the supernatural. He showers righteousness on you. God says, give me your righteousness. Reap the fruit of unfailing love. Break up your unplowed ground. There's parts of your heart. He wasn't talking about literal ground and they knew this. He was talking about the rebellion of their heart. God was saying, Israel, you're missing something new and redemptive and beautiful because there's still parts of your heart that are hard towards me. And here's the truth, thousands of years later, we all, if we're being honest, at every one of our campuses have areas of our heart that are still hard. And I would hate for any of us to miss out on something God is doing new and fresh and beautiful in all of our lives or in our church or in our city or in this nation or around the world. I'd hate for us to miss out on whatever the next reformation of God is simply because there's places in our heart that have not been dealt with. Most of us aren't missing out on the new wine of God in our lives because we're not smart enough or, don't, or, or just need more knowledge from the Bible. Again, that's a good thing in its proper place. Most of us aren't receiving this new wine that I'm preaching about, and you might be frustrated simply because there are still parts of your heart that have not been plowed and it cannot receive the seed God is trying to put there to grow something new and beautiful. And so I have a hunch, I know what you're thinking. You're saying, okay, Chad, well, well, what's that look like? That sounds nice and it's poetic and, and the prophet said it beautifully, but what's it mean to break up and to plow the parts of my heart to receive revival and to receive redemption and to receive something new? A couple things. Number one, it's plowing 101. I know we're not an agricultural society anymore, but we all know this. When a plow goes to the soil, it's got at least a couple fundamental purposes. Number one, it's to rip up the hardness of the topsoil so it can get to the soft soil underneath it where seed really starts to grow. And if you just throw seed on a bunch of hard ground, it just stays there. And it doesn't grow or it doesn't grow nearly in the time it was supposed to, in the way it was supposed to, with the growth it was supposed to. That's the first thing. But the second thing, and this is so important, please hear this. The second thing is that plower will also at the same time it's ripping up the topsoil, it'll rip away the weeds. And you know what weeds do? 
we're in spring, so we were about, y'all about to hate weeds again. We forgot about them for several months. You're about to hate weeds again. You know why we hate weeds? Because weeds compete with seeds for water. Weeds compete with seeds for water. So if God's wanting to throw a new seed to grow something new, some new wine in the heart of your life, whatever that looks like, and you've got weeds still there, guess what? Something really small and unimpressive, if anything at all, is gonna be able to grow even when God rains his righteousness on you. And here's why, because so much of that sustenance is being taken up by the weeds that are still in your heart. And you say, okay, now I understand that, but Chad, what are you talking about when you say weeds? I just wrote some of the weeds of the heart that can most compete with God doing something new. And I would argue maybe, just maybe, God doing something new isn't you getting intellectually stronger, but it's dealing with weeds and letting the grace of God plow through your heart in repentance. Number one, I wrote resentment. We're gonna talk about a weed that competes with the seeds of God for something new. You've been hurt, you've been wounded. Someone did something to you and it's unexplainable and you don't have answers and it just doesn't make sense and your heart has been shaken by it and you're mad and you're frustrated and you're angry and the ultimate manifestation of that anger turns into resentment and that is a weed that will suck the life out of a seed of something new God wants to do. I wrote here, offense. That's the brother to resentment is carrying an offense and not having the grace to let it go. Thank God Jesus didn't carry an offense to the cross, right? He literally looked at the people that put nails through his hands and said, forgive them, Father. They don't understand why they would do something like that. And then he asked us to have that kind of bravery as his disciples. This is huge. Envy, jealousy, comparison. You want to talk about some weeds that compete with seed. For God to do something new, you may say, hey man, I'm a good person with a good heart, but you relentlessly struggle with envy and jealousy. And here's the big one in our culture, comparison. And God's going, man, your heart is hard towards the beautiful things of this world and to other image bearers because you don't have what they have or you think they got it better than you. And now you don't understand how I'm sovereignly working up there and you think it's something about them and you that I have for you and, and your heart's hard now and you can't receive the new thing I wanna do because you're so caught up with everything everybody else is doing. And it's a weed and it competes for the seed of something new. Or I wrote wounds, wounds from your father, your mother, your spouse, your friend, your church. I know a bunch of people that started coming to this church because of the deep hurt they had from other churches. And I also, now we're gonna have real talk, know some people that left our church because we wounded them. I know some people that we've wounded that are staying here and choosing to brave through it. But at some point, you gotta bring that to God. And you gotta say, God, I have been wounded by my father who was never there. Or I've been wounded by my mother who fill in the blank. Or I've been wounded by my best of friends. Or that church, that place I put my hope and my, my trust in to, to show me Jesus, they hurt me deeply. Listen, that is a weed that will destroy God doing something new in your life if you hold on to that. Unbelief. I think of the prayer from Thomas. God, I believe so much about you, but help me in my unbelief. We know in part right now, you're gonna have unbelief, but, but it's that prayer of God, I, I believe you here, but I can't believe you here. God, help me in my unbelief. Unforgiveness, I wrote in capitals. Perhaps the highest form of sacrilegion is unforgiveness. Might be the most sacrilegious behavior we walk in is unforgiveness. It's the highest form of godliness on this side of eternity. It's what Jesus literally came to do 
when we deserved it least. And then he says, once I give it to you, let that be fuel to pass it on. Some of you right now, you're missing out on some new wine, something new because of unforgiveness. And I'm not making light of whoever hurt you. I'm just simply telling you, God has the strength and the power and the grace to allow you to forgive them and mean it and to move on to something new and something so much better. Unrighteousness, good old fashioned disobedience. Remember that thing? We are pros at giving pet names to our sins and creating narratives as to why we struggle with them. Other people do it and we're mad and we want them convicted and we want them done. But when we do, you know, judgment for them, mercy for me, right? Because here's God, you know my story. Sometimes this good old fashioned disobedience is the weed that is competing with all the water for the seed that God wants to grow something new. So if you guys at every campus will stand, I just want to do this. I want to have a time of awesome repentance and prayer. It's two weeks in a row. God must be doing something right now. I just want to offer every single one of us at every campus an opportunity to repent right now. Here's what repentance is. The first thing it is, is confession. That's a part of it. And that's where you give it a name. If you have unforgiveness, give it a name. Call it what it is. If there's an area of sin that you clearly know is sin, give it a name. Not a pet name anymore. Give it a name the Bible gives it. And say, God, I repent. God, help me to change because I am not good enough in myself to change. If there's hurt, if there's unforgiveness, if there's brokenness, if there's wounds, if there's unbelief, if there's jealousy and rivalry, and if there's comparison that you're struggling with, don't give it a pet name anymore. Call it what it is. We repent. Listen, nothing in the kingdom of God moves forward without repentance first. It is the entry point to the kingdom of God going from heaven to earth. It's always repentance. As Sean said last week, repentance always leads to refreshment. You want refreshment? You want something new? You want something more redeemed? It has to start by you being brave enough to confess and repent and say, God, help me to walk in the opposite direction of that wound and that unforgiveness. Help me to forgive, God. Some of you are are a genuine forgiving away from God doing something so beautiful and something so new. And so we're going to sing a song, and most of you have never heard it before. I've had it on repeat for weeks now. It is beautiful. It's actually called, ready for this, New Wine. And we're not going to just sing it as a worship song. We're going to sing it as a prayer. And I'm going to ask, take your time. Let the beautiful worship teams at all of our campuses bless you. If you don't, don't, don't worry about knowing the words or learning the words. But as soon as you see something that they sing and you see on the screens at your campus, as soon as you see a line that resonates and God speaking through the power of his Holy Spirit, would you do me a favor? Would you just throw your hands up in the air? just for a little bit and say, God, yes, I want that. Whatever that line, God, I want that. God, that's me right now. And it's not some weird religious thing. If you're new to this, it's just a sign of surrender going, God, I can't on my own. And like a little kid, you're going, God, would you pick me up? Dad, would you hold me? Come on, Dad, would you help me? And I'm believing that we're gonna walk in an era at Red Rocks Church this year where God is doing some completely new things in us and through us. New wine, baby. I want it. I want it, man. I'm a little pup in the kingdom of God. I'm just tipping the iceberg of what I know about God. And so far, it's been great, and I want way more of it. Any of you guys with me? Am I just preaching to myself? I'm fine with that. Okay, all right. So I'm going to pray and that every campus, we're going to repent and we're going to worship and we're going to pray. Heavenly Father, God, in these next few minutes, would you do something so exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or think for? Would you do something so powerful, God, for your honor, for your glory, for your name? Would you revolutionize our hearts? Would you bring a new depth of intimacy and love and revelation about who you are to us, your church down here, God? Would you bless Red Rocks with new wine, something new, something fresh, something living and active? Active God, we call out to you. We expect this with the faith of a child, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship.